0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Philippians chapter 4. we will be in verses 10 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you, and the pew Bible number is uh, page 982. Uh, Like Will said, that we're in our last couple weeks with Philippians, so we have two more uh, sermons on the letter Uh, this morning. We'll take a break next week with Good the Bluegrass, where Brian Chappell will be here speaking on God's faithfulness, and then we'll finish the week after, which will get us into Lent and the series on the temptations that we uniquely Uh, struggle with. Um, So you can turn your attention now to Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And if you hear any anger or disappointment in my voice this morning, please know that has everything to do with UK basketball and nothing to do with you all. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Paul's writing and he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. And we pray that it would strengthen us this morning, that you'd open our eyes to what we just sang, that we'd be captivated by your beauty, we'd be captivated by your worth. Lord, and it would help our hearts that are so restless finally find its rest again in you. Lord, we need your help. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you have noticed this, but the human heart has a tendency to run. That has been shown throughout history um, through various writers such as Augustine in 400 AD all the way up to rock stars like Bruce Springsteen. In the early 1970s, Bruce Springsteen, or if you prefer, The Boss, him and the E Street Band were down their luck. Their first two albums had been a commercial flop. They had spent a lot of their money and energy trying to produce these. And if they were gonna keep going, something had to change. And it was in that time that Bruce began to write down the lyrics to born to Run. And this song not only changed Springsteen's career, but it captivated all of America. It filled up stadiums with people singing at the top of their lungs the lyrics that you probably know, baby we are born to run. You see Bruce Springsteen's song Born to Run captured America because it captured the restlessness of the human heart. But Bruce writes in his memoir that 40 years later, He was no longer looking to run, he was just looking to find some rest, and he couldn't. No matter how much he did, uh, he could not find rest anywhere, and he writes this at the end of his memoir, which is also entitled "Boarding to Run. He writes, Mentally, just when I thought I was in the part of my life where I'm supposed to be cruising, my 60s were a rough, rough ride. During this period, I was so profoundly uncomfortable in my own skin that I just wanted out. I was so uncomfortable doing anything, standing, walking, sitting down. Everything brought waves of an agitated anxiety that I'd spent every waking minute trying to dispel. I spent good portions of my day with the covers up to my nose, waiting for it all to stop. There was no life here. It was like all my notorious energy, something that had been mine to command for most of my life, had been cruelly stolen away, and there was no rest. 20 Grammys, over 140 million records sold, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the most beloved musicians of all time, and if music wasn't enough, he also received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016, and still no rest for Bruce Springsteen. Why is it easier for our hearts to run than the rest? Why is it that no matter what we do or what we have, we can never seem to get to that elusive place of contentment. We can never get to that place where our life seems enough that I can be satisfied. Paul, in the last part of this letter, before he officially signs off with his closing greeting, he says something really astonishing. He says, I've learned the answer to that question. I've learned the answer why our hearts can't rest. I've actually learned the secret of contentment. And he wants to share it with us this morning. Because we desperately need to learn it too. So let's look at it together. Three points from Philippians 4 on contentment. First, the struggle of contentment. Second, the school of contentment. And third, the secret of contentment. And I'll go through those one by one as we go. First, the struggle of contentment. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord, which has been that constant theme of Philippians. He keeps coming back to rejoicing in the Lord. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And we finally find out at the end of this letter what Paul's practical purpose was in writing to that church. What we have here is a thank you letter. He wants to thank the church at Philippi for their concern for him and their generosity toward him in the gospel. If you read down a little bit in verses 14 through 16, you see it, this church has been a constant financial supporter of the Apostle Paul. Anytime he had a need, they were quick to be generous to him. They have helped him over and over and over again. But then he makes an interesting turn in verse 11. Look at this, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's thanking them for their generosity for his needs. But then he turns around and says, just so you know... I'm not speaking of actually being in need. It feels like a, hey, thank you church at Philippi, but actually no thanks, I'm okay. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's thankful for their gift, but he wants them to know that even if they weren't able to give, and sometimes they haven't been, that's what he means by you had no opportunity. He wants them to know that even if they weren't able to give, he is okay. With or without their gift, Paul is saying, I am still content Is the money helpful to him? Is he glad that they gave it? Of course he is. He says so. But he also says, even if you didn't give it, I'm still okay. Because I have learned what I truly need. And Paul, in saying that, Paul, in saying that he had to learn this, should help us breathe a little bit. Because the fact that Paul the Apostle had to learn this shows just how much of a struggle contentment is. Contentment didn't come natural for Paul. It wasn't easy for Paul. It wasn't just a switch he could turn on. In fact, the word behind that word learn means a lifetime of learning. It did not happen overnight. And isn't this so true? Think about this right now. Think about how easy it is to become discontent with your life. You can be having a perfectly fine day, a perfectly fine week, and a picture on Facebook, a comment by a coworker, A bill in the mail, a child's tantrum, or hypothetically a UK game over the weekend can completely throw your life into scrambles. It can start to make you discontent. It can start to make you unsatisfied. Contentment is such a struggle for our hearts because our hearts don't know what we need. That's what Paul is saying. In these few verses, Paul is diagnosing the spiral of the human heart that has existed since the fall in Genesis three. Why are we so restless? Why is it such a struggle to be content? Paul says our hearts have these desires and these desires are actually good things. Don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying contentment is ignoring your desires. He's not saying it's denying the reality of what you're going through, your pain, your suffering. He's not saying detach yourself from your emotions or just try to be happy all the time, put on a smiling face. That's not what Paul says contentment is. Paul is saying discontentment happens when the desires of the human heart turn into demands. When what we desire becomes what we demand. When what we want becomes what we must have. You see, Paul is thankful for their concern. He desired their gift. He rejoiced in the Lord because of it. But he did not demand it. He did not say, I must have your gift to be okay. In fact, he says, whether or not he got it, he'll be okay. You see, Paul has learned his true need. But for many of us, we don't know what we need. So what we think we need is actually, in reality, what we want. And our desires become our demands. The struggle of contentment is the struggle to know what we need. And like Paul, The Russian author Leo Tolstoy was a master of diagnosing this in the human heart. If you read his stories, he's always getting to the center of what is going on in the human heart. And in his short story, "How much does a man? How much does a man? How much? How much land does a man need?" He tells the story of a young man, Pahom, who thinks what he truly needs in this life is more land. Hence, the title: "How much land does a man need?" This man, Pahom, thinks. I need to fix my problems through just getting a little bit more land. So opportunity comes along. He puts together his belongings, his resources, and he buys 20 acres. And finally, his family has land of his own, and they start to have this joy for a few months because this increase in land has led to an increase in problems. See, this increase in land, the neighbors are now coming onto his property. And so what does he need to do? I need to get more land. So he sets out to buy more land. An opportunity comes up of 125 acres. He sells the land that he has, gathers more belongings to get all these acres. But as he even does that, he hears of another place much farther away that a native tribe is on that is selling all kinds of land for very cheap. As much land as you want for $1,000. There was just one catch. You had to walk it. So what the game was is he, he went to that, place, that, that person's land, he talked to the chief, and the chief told him, you can have as much land as you can walk. So from when the sun rises, you take off, and as many places you can go and mark, you can have all that land as long as you make it back to the starting point before sunrise, before sunset. As much land as you could cover from sunrise to sunset, as long as you make it back, it is yours. But if you don't make it back, you lose everything. And you can see where the story is going. Pahom gets really excited about this and he starts walking and he thinks this is incredible. He's really, he's really good in shape and he's like, from sunrise to sunset, I can walk 35 miles. I can cover so much land. And the further he goes, he keeps going and going. And Tolstoy writes, the further Pahom goes, the better the land seemed. Just seemed to keep getting better and better and better. And he keeps going and going and going until he realizes I've gone too far. His eyes have led him farther than his feet can travel, and he has the utter realization, I'm not going to make it back to the starting point in time. I'm not going to make it back in time before sunset. So he takes off sprinting. And his heart is beating too fast, and his legs are getting heavy, and they start to give way. And just as the sun sets below the horizon, the home falls down right at the starting point, and he falls down dead. Tolstoy ends this short story by saying this, Pahom's servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in, and he buried him in it. He had gained much land, but it turns out six feet from his head to his heels was now all he needed. As you read that story, you you think, this guy is crazy. (laughs) He has more than enough. Why can't he just stop? And then you realize, why can't I stop? Oftentimes, we have more than enough But we can't stop because we never ask the question, like Pahom never asked the question, how much land do I need? Have you asked that question? I know it's probably not land for you. Maybe it is. But why are we so discontent? Why are we so unsatisfied? Why can we not rest? Because we have been convinced since the fall of mankind that what the human heart most needs is a change of circumstances instead of God. When we think contentment, we, must, we most always think circumstances. We think, what are the problems in my life, and how can I change my circumstances to get out of those problems? But every time we change our circumstances, more problems come up. And just a caveat here, just an aside, because this is really important pastorally. When Paul is talking about being content in your circumstances, he's not talking about being content in sinful circumstances. Paul is not saying, if you're being sinned against in here here this morning, or if you're sinning against someone in here this morning, that's okay. Just be content. That's not what Paul's saying. Don't go where Paul is not going. The last thing Paul is saying is, if you're in abuse, just be content with that. No, Paul is not talking about the struggle of contentment in sinful circumstances. He's talking about the struggle of contentment in life circumstances. And that struggle comes down to we must learn what we truly need. So how do we learn it? We've seen the struggle of contentment. Next, let's look at the school of contentment. How do you begin to learn what you truly need in life? Look at verse 11. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How has Paul learned it? Verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment is learned not in the classroom, but Paul says it's actually learned in life. And what Paul says here is very subtle, but oh, it's significant. When Paul speaks of his life, all the circumstances he's been through, the highs and the lows, notice that Paul speaks in a passive voice. Paul does not say that he was low. What does he say? I was brought low. Paul's not say that he was low. He says that I was brought low. Do you remember the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis? How Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, how he was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. And the language that's used throughout that story, if you look back, is the language of being brought it says over and over again that he was brought down to those places. And at the very end of the story, the curtain gets pulled back. And we find out that those men weren't the ones primarily bringing Joseph down. God was the one bringing Joseph down. Why? Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What does Joseph's story teach us? His circumstances didn't dictate his life. God dictated his life. You see, all along, God was the one bringing him down to all those places for his good and his people's good. You see, contentment is not just learned by going through circumstances, but seeing where those circumstances have come from. Paul shows us this time and time and time again throughout this letter. What is Paul's current circumstance right now? He's in a jail cell, and earlier in the letter, he tells us why God had brought him there. God had brought him to this place in prison because now the whole imperial guard knows about Jesus because God brought him there, showing that circumstances don't dictate his life, Paul's choices don't dictate his life, cruel fate does not dictate Paul's life. What dictates Paul's life is the care of his Father in heaven, and this is the doctrine of providence. And if we want to learn contentment, we have to learn it. In my experience here, and I could be wrong, but the Reformed world in America, we tend to have a really strong theology of God's sovereignty, which can be a really good thing, that God is in control of all things. But we tend to be really weak on God's providence, that God is not just in control of all things, but he cares in all things. And a strong theology of sovereignty without a strong theology of providence can make God feel really distant and can make him feel really cold, especially when you've been brought low. But listen again to our confession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism, which defines God's providence for us. It says the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand all things, the highs and the lows the plenty and the hunger, the abundance and the poverty. And then listen to it at the end. It says, all these things come to us, not by chance, but by our Father's hand. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. That all the circumstances of his life, the low and the high, have all come to him through the hands of his Father in heaven. You see, contentment comes not just through your circumstances, but you have to trace your circumstances back to the Father's hand. When I was in college, a friend gave me a book that changed my life and I'm assuming it might have changed several of you all's lives as well. It's J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It was just a unique time in my, my college career. I was a junior and some things were not going well in my life. I was disoriented, things were being upended. And although looking back, it probably wasn't that big a deal at the time, it was a very big deal for me and I really couldn't see a way forward of what this is gonna turn out to be. And when I couldn't understand what God was doing, J.I. Packers, knowing God, strengthened me by showing who God is. And he would write things like this. Not merely does God guide us in the sense of showing us his way, that we just may then go walk in it by ourselves. He also guides us in the more fundamental sense of ensuring that whatever happens, whatever mistakes we may make, we shall come safely home. Slipping and straying there will be, but the everlasting arms are always beneath us. We shall be caught. We shall be rescued. We shall be restored. And I thought, I want to know God like that. I want a God whose everlasting arms is always beneath me. How did this man, Jab Packer, get to know this wonderful and beautiful God? Then I found out how. When he was seven, Packer ran out into the streets and had a collision with a bread truck. And although it did not kill him, it caused significant damage to his brain, where he had to wear a protective aluminum plate over the injury, and the doctor said he had to abstain from any physical activity. A young boy, all the physical activity he wants to get into through sports and all different things, he now had to abstain from. And J.I. Packer already struggled to make friends, and this drove him into more isolation. A couple years later for his 11th birthday, all he wanted was a bicycle. Because in that time, the schoolboys in England, the 11th birthday was kind of a rite of passage and they got a bicycle showing their freedom and call up into manhood. And he hinted all throughout the days, mom and dad, I really want this bicycle. And he woke up on his birthday, he ran downstairs to open his present and instead of a bicycle, he found a typewriter because his parents were on strict orders from the doctor that he could not risk a fall on that bike. And he was devastated. You can imagine. What an 11-year-old boy wants a typewriter over a bicycle? Until he started using it. Packer started coming alive, riding and riding on that typewriter, and up until his death, he wrote every single book on a typewriter. You see those words that so changed my life in college? They came through the typewriter of J.I. Packer. And that typewriter to J.I. Packer came through the hands of his heavenly father. Packer did not get what he wanted because his father knew what he needed. And that's exactly what the serpent does in the garden. The father's hand is exactly what the serpent goes after in the garden. Have you ever noticed that? The serpent in the garden wants to blind Adam and Eve to the Father's hand and care for them, to disconnect what their circumstances are from God's care for them. Because we know this, but Adam and Eve were given everything. Everything they truly needed was in that garden. But do you remember the temptation? Your God hasn't given you everything you need. What about that tree? You don't have that tree, so you don't have everything you need And since you don't have that tree, God must not really care about you. And that's the poison. In that moment, Eve's desires become demands, her wants become needs, and their content hearts are shattered into a million pieces of discontent. Their hearts, which had been completely at rest with their God, were now found running from their God. This is why our hearts run. Will you take your restlessness to him right now? Will you go to him right now by tracing your circumstances, all that's going on in your life, back to your father's hand? And that might be really painful, and you might not want to do that alone. But you need to see that he has brought you to where you are. Because the more we trace our circumstances to the father's hand, we will eventually get to the father's heart. That's why we have to do it. We have to trace what we're going through to the father's hand, because it will always lead us to the Father's heart. And we know the Father's heart because we have Jesus. So let's end there now. We've seen the struggle. We've seen the school. Now let's finish with the secret of contentment. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he tells us a secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul does not end his argument with a practice. He ends it with a person because that's what you need to find rest. That's what you need to find satisfaction. And hopefully through this sermon and even this series, you see the context of this verse because Philippians 4.13 is the most taken out of context verse in the entire Bible. You'll probably see it at the Super Bowl at some point tonight. (laughs) You see, we take this verse, and I think it has something to do with our discontentment, We take this verse and we put it on our goals. We say, I can now just accomplish anything I want as long as I tag Christ into it. However, when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, all things refers to the circumstances he's been going through, not what he can accomplish, not the things he has accomplished. See, Paul is not using this verse for you to become more self-sufficient. He's using it for you to see Christ as all-sufficient. He's not asking you to be more independent. He's asking you to be more dependent. That's the secret. You see, the secret of contentment is not ignoring circumstances or rising above them or just resigning yourself to them. It's living through every single circumstance that comes your way with Christ because he is your strength. The secret is not that you can now accomplish anything. It's that you can actually go through anything because you're united to Christ And because you're united to Christ, His Spirit is always with you. Meaning, the Spirit places your hand in the resurrected and reigning Savior's hand. And no matter where you go, there He is leading you, comforting you, sustaining you, strengthening you. Because circumstances can and will always change, but Christ can't. Christ can't change. Everything in this life can and will be taken away. Christ will not. This is how Paul can write this from a jail cell because jail has taken so much from Paul his friendships, his ministry, his health, his vitality. But the jail cell could not take Christ. Christ is right there with him. And Paul knows what I need most is not a change in circumstance, I need Christ's presence. A change in circumstance will not bring me the strength I need. It will have to come through Christ's presence. When we had Lydia, we didn't know this. We thought every child was like this, but she was an extreme extrovert. She was social. She's a friendship machine. She never met a stranger. We'd take her to the park. She would meet them and be playing with them. She was excited about going to nursery, about going to school. And then we had Joshua, and he was not. He was much more like me. He was more shy. He liked to do things to himself. Um, And on top of all that, it was during COVID. And because of the shutdowns, he just wasn't around a lot of people, which exasperated everything. And when things opened back up after COVID, it really opened up for him. Nursery, preschool, play dates, people, 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 people. And Joshua wanted none of it. He was often afraid. And no matter what we told him, or try to get him to do, nothing seemed to calm his little heart down until Lydia showed up. Because you see, Lydia is Joshua's big sister, and Lydia's not afraid of anything. She would take him by his hand, and she would lead him into all those places he was scared to go. And with Lydia, Joshua suddenly went from being sad or scared to being strong, real strong. Not in his own strength, but because he had his big sister right there with him, strengthening him. Do you know that as real as Lydia leading Joshua by his hand is as real as Christ leads you by his Holy Spirit this morning? Jesus Christ is your older brother, and he's not scared of anything. Storms on a boat, demons in a man, the Roman government, the religious leaders that are out to get him, even the devil himself in the desert, Jesus faced them all down. And there's only one real moment in the Gospels where Jesus is shaken. It's in the garden the night before he was crucified. And let me be clear here, Jesus is without sin. But no one can deny that here in the garden before his crucifixion, Jesus is in turmoil. To the point that the Gospel writers describe him as troubled, greatly distressed, and in agony. In Jesus' own words, he said, My soul is sorrowful even to death. And you read that and you think, this is Jesus. This is the man who has faced everything and he's not even flinched. So what's going on here? Jesus tells us when he takes his circumstances to his father, what's going on. He prays to his father in heaven and he asks his father, let this cup pass from me. This cup in the Old Testament symbolized the wrath of God that was being stored up for all the sins of mankind. And Jesus has very real desires for that cup to pass from him. Jesus has really real desires about let there be another way. But unlike Adam and Eve, his desires do not become his demands. He trusts his father's hand and it leads him to his father's heart. And the father sends Jesus in his love for us. And Jesus goes to the cross in his love for us. And he is brought low by God in heaven bearing the wrath of God for you and me. You see, on the cross, Jesus found death for his soul, that this morning you can come to him and find rest for years. He leads our sins to the cross, and he buries them fully and finally. And three days later, he leads us out of the grave, showing that now not even death can separate you from him. You know, I hear often from people that, They don't know if they can go through the things of life. They say, I don't know if I can go through what I see that person is having to go through. I don't know if I can go through what the Apostle Paul went through. Beatings, jail time, persecution, shipwreck, suffering. I don't know if I can go through what the church is going through in China, being persecuted, being underground, or just in here. I don't know if I can go through what that person's going through with a terminal illness, with their job loss, with family brokenness, all that loss and suffering and pain, I just don't know if I could go through it. And maybe you're not saying that about another person. Maybe you're saying that about yourself. I don't know if I can go through this. It feels too hard. It feels too painful. There's too much loss here at stake. Listen to me. Yes, you can. You can go through this because it will not be by your own strength. It'll be by the strength of your Savior. Whatever this life brings to you, you can go through it because you will not go through it alone. You will go through it with Jesus. The cross and the resurrection are God's declaration to our hearts that he is never going anywhere. There is nowhere we will go in this life that God's love will not go with us. Your eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath it all will always be his everlasting arms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your spirit and your words and how your promises bring us your presence and your presence strengthen us, Lord. I pray for strength right now. As we come to your table, again, remind us and renew us in the strength of who you are, that you have given yourself for us, that you love us, and that you're gonna carry us all the way home. Give us a tiny taste of that this morning so we can go out to whatever you might be calling us to do. And now we pray as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.